Deborah Rothschild curated an art exhibit entitled Prelude to a Nightmare, Art, Politics, and Hitler's Early Years in Vienna, 1906-1913. She was interviewed about her subject for The New Yorker and shared her thoughts from before her work and her conclusions that came after as she performed a deep dive into the psyche of one of history's evilest beings. I used to think it could have been anyone, she says, but I don't think that anymore. The New Yorker goes on to add weight behind that thought, stating that while Hitler's rise remains mysterious, if only as to the precise amount of dumb luck involved, Rothschild's show leaves no doubt that Nazism was a singular invention, and that Hitler was its indispensable author. Without him, fascism might well have succeeded in Germany, but nothing foreordained Nazism's blend of dash and malice, its brilliant technology and skulking atavism. It seems clear that Hitler employed artistic means, hypnotic oratory, moving spectacle, elegant design, not just to gain power, but to wield it in the here and now. In a way, Nazism was his programmed vehicle with which to use to remodel the world according to his particular taste. When it passed the makeshift and incomplete Reichstag, the Enabling Act granted the Fuhrer legal dictator powers. That was March of 1933. Within six years, the Austrian would go on to lead his chosen home country in a war which would forcibly spread his unique vision to the rest of the world. A little more than a decade later, 75 million individuals would be dead because of those actions. This is episode number three in our series on Adolf Hitler, his domestic policies. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list of Hitler's policies, nor will it be chronological. My intent is to give an overview of the major changes that the fear brought to Germany in the lead-up to World War II. Although it's difficult to separate domestic from foreign policy, which is often intertwined, I'm going to attempt to separate the two as best that I can for the purpose of time. This means that a number of domestic policies, such as rebuilding the military, will be placed into our next episode, which will focus on Germany's march to war. With so many changes to choose from, I think it is important to explain my rationale as much as possible. I chose to focus on these policies largely based upon the following question. How did Adolf Hitler manage to nearly universally convince Germans, as well as a large segment of individuals throughout the world, to go along with his sick and twisted vision of the world? This question matters if we are to make sure that we don't let one individual take blame for what was a collective failure. During the Holocaust trials in Nuremberg, the perpetrators of the vilest crime in human history regularly fell back upon the same defense, that they were just following orders. That defense was summarily rejected by the court, but the fact that so many utilized it shows that they just didn't fully understand what they had participated in. This individual deflection of blame to the collective is largely why the government was able to perpetrate systemic genocide. While it may have been true that the individual on trial was just an electrician in a camp, or that it was just their job to clean the latrines or even the crematoriums, it was also true that they accepted and completed that job or task that they were given. They showed up every single day to perform it. They walked through the security checkpoints, past the gaunt faces of the Muslim as some camp survivors referred to themselves after starvation had set in. They walked past the bodies that were stacked up because the crematorium couldn't handle the capacity of death happening all around it. This willingness to look the other way while they were making sure that the electricity still flowed enabled the system that murdered at least 6 million to continue to operate efficiently. They went along with it. They were a part of it. 
The Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum in Poland tweeted something that I found profound. It came in reaction to U.S. migration policy during the Trump administration, which was defined by acts that were thoroughly hostile to migrants. The message read, quote, When we look at Auschwitz, we see the end of the process. It's important to remember that the Holocaust actually did not start from gas chambers. This hatred gradually developed from words, stereotypes, and prejudice through legal exclusion, dehumanization, and escalating violence. The camps were an end, not the beginning. By examining the policies of Adolf Hitler, we hope to better understand why he was able to get so many people to participate in one of, if not the most heinous acts in all of human history. Even dictators are beholden to the power of the masses. Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi found that out the hard way as his people literally tore him limb from limb. Hitler's people, however, never turned on him. Some still remain ardent followers despite the heinous acts that you are about to hear of in this episode. It was all by design, and even in 1933, a clear goal was beginning to take shape in the minds of the new German government. Hitler would work to answer what was known as the Jewish question once and for all, but to do that, he would have to turn the masses to his way of thinking. This involved creating the Volksgemeinschaft, or People's Community. And here lies the secret to his success, for it was uniformity rather than individuality that was the key to how Hitler managed to get individuals to just follow his orders. This people's community that Volksgemeinschaft called for was designed to break down elitism as a way of uniting all social and economic classes in Germany to one which was devoted to a national purpose. That purpose was tweaked from time to time, but if you had to put a simple slogan to it, it would be to make Germany great again. This greatness was neither a distant thing, nor was it a guarantee. There wasn't that much of a national past to look back on. After all, Germany had only become a single unified nation in 1871, a mere 62 years before Adolf came to power. The Treaty of Versailles and the subsequent worldwide destruction that followed its ratification absolutely annihilated all hope for Germany to ascend to great power status in the short term. This was by design, as both France and England had purposefully voted to permanently blunt the German war machine. The economy that Adolf Hitler had inherited was an absolute wreck. Without a doubt, no one could have imagined how efficiently he would be able to get it back on track. Getting people back to work is always the first critical step to turning around an economy. In 1932, Germany's unemployment rate was at a staggering 30%. For comparison's sake, the U.S. economy's unemployment during the 2000s Great Recession peaked at 10.6%. During the Great Depression, the number reached as high as 24.9%, meaning that it was still five points lower than Germany had at this moment. There were a number of policies that aided in successfully reducing unemployment in Germany from 6 million to only 1 million over the course of the next four years. Hitler used a number of typical governmental tricks to achieve this feat. First, he used the government to stimulate the economy. He put a massive public works program into place to build high-quality roads throughout Germany. This still remains one of the largest stimulus bang-for-your-buck methods today. It was even more effective in 1933, however, because keep in mind that the automobile industry was just beginning to take off. The influx of government money ensured the shovels went immediately into the ground and money began flowing into workers' pockets. Hitler seemed to instinctively and immediately understand the revolutionary power of the car, 
and he offered massive state incentives for impoverished German families to be able to buy automobiles. Just mere weeks into his presidency, he announced a people's motorization plan. One of Hitler's rhetorical flourishes was to designate everything as for the people. In fact, it's one of the dead giveaways for finding which countries aren't democratic. People's Republic of China? Democratic Republic of the Congo? The Democratic People's Republic of North Korea? None of these are quite as democratic as they would like you to believe. The German government tasked Porsche with the creation of a personal vehicle that could be mass-produced for both personal and military uses. The motto for the task was identical to a Nazi slogan, which translates to strength through pleasure. The company that spawned from these efforts would eventually rebrand itself as the People's Car, or Volkswagen. Their first car off of the assembly line was the infamous Volkswagen Beetle, and it sold for today's equivalent of $140. Hitler's efforts to stimulate the economy also meant continued production on the stretch of highway known as the Autobahn. This project was actually a reverse of course for the Fuhrer. Before they came to power, the Nazis railed against the modern highway, claiming that it would only benefit the rich. Like most politicians, however, Adolf in power changed his tune. He took elaborately staged photos to ensure that everyone knew that he was responsible for the jobs that the Autobahn created. Despite the success, Hitler's real mission, however, was always conquest. World War II interrupted all of the good that came with this focus on transportation. The war halted production at Volkswagen, and their factories were later bombed by the Allies. The effectiveness of stimulating an economy via the nation's auto industry shouldn't be in doubt. But to drive the point home, the French used the Volkswagen company as the centerpiece for their efforts to restore the economy of West Germany, after their occupation began. It was from these efforts, and not the involvement of Adolf Hitler, that the Volkswagen Beetle achieved its enduring popularity that still remains today. Just as the car program was simultaneously designed to aid the military buildup, Hitler also provided massive incentives for each family to purchase their own radio. Besides stimulating consumer spending, the radio, which achieved widespread popularity within people's homes during the late 1920s, would allow for the Nazis to beam their propaganda directly into every German living room. Again, the product was given a name which started with Volk, or people. Hitler always liked to portray himself as a man on the side, the man who provided the drumbeat, rather than someone that led or dictated from the front. In this case, Volkschempfanger, a type of affordable radio in Germany, brought the news, music, dramas, and comedy right into the people's homes. In order to achieve mass production, the radio was made up of early, low-cost, durable plastic, cardboard, and cloth. The only adornment on the radio was the national arms in the form of an eagle and swastika on both sides. Historian Andrew Stewart Bergeson points out the multifaceted brilliance of this move by stating, In the same stroke, industrialists profited from the high volume of sales. Low-income consumers were given access to this new media, and the Nazi regime was given more direct access to the Volk. Another point in the favor of how valuable the radio became to the Nazi government was its inclusion in the Nuremberg Laws. It became illegal for any Jewish resident or citizen to be in possession of a radio. This helped to limit information from reaching them about how bad it was getting in other areas of Germany. Adolf Hitler also turned to some underhanded tricks to solve unemployment. Large numbers of ex-soldiers found homes within Hitler's SA and newly created SS shock troops. Additionally, Adolf Hitler tested the boundaries by adding large numbers to the employment ranks of the military, 
and his personal police force, the Gestapo. The simple trick of having the men train with shovels rather than rifles allowed Adolf to tow the legal line set out by the Treaty of Versailles. Even this was somewhat for show, however, for in private, Adolf had once again restarted factories which were designed to build up Germany's weapons supply. Their military during this time period expanded from 100,000 to 1.4 million. Each new soldier needed new uniforms, daily meals, weapons, and transportation. That meant increased orders and jobs in factories across the nation. Adolf also put men back to work by eliminating positions that were largely held by women. Weimar Germany, for all of its faults, did manage to extend to women the right to vote. Due to their newfound suffrage, plus the fact that so many men were physically and or psychologically wounded, the majority of Germany's electorate was female. In 1919, 10% of the Reichstag seats were held by women. To put this achievement in context, today, 100 years later, 27% of the U.S. Congress is in the hands of women. In addition to their presence in the Reichstag, women came to the forefront during Weimar to fill in the employment gaps that World War I had created. Conductors, store clerks, factory workers, lawyers, and doctors all became roles that were commonly being filled by Weimar women. Alice Ruhl Gerstel, a German psychologist, monitored the changes and believed that they represented a new wave of women responding to the intoxicating sense of freedom and empowerment. According to Ruhl Gerstel, these women cut an entirely new figure on the German social and political scenes. The new German modern woman not only cut her hair and shortened her skirts, but began to emancipate herself altogether from the physical limitations of being female. Unfortunately, Isaac Newton's third law reminds us that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every eye open to gender equality, there were two more who advocated for a return to their traditional role. For every job that had been filled, there were unemployed veterans demanding their jobs back. And for every newly enlightened young lady, there were family members wondering about their role in a changing society. Pushback began to emerge even before the Weimar Republic fell. For instance, Germans had begun promoting Mother's Day as a significant national holiday, celebrating with the slogan, Kinder Kusch Curse, or Children Kitchen Church. On gender equality, Hitler's thoughts were reminiscent of separate but equal, a phrase that Americans know to be patently dangerous to equality. In 1935, he stated that in the Germanic nations there has never been anything else than equality of rights for women. Both sexes have their rights, their tasks, and these tasks were in the case of each equal in dignity and value, and therefore, man and women were on an equality. His chief propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, made the Nazi position even more crystal clear about what these positions were, stating that the mission of women is to be beautiful and to bring children into the world. Even in 1929, he knew exactly how that sounded, considering he attempted to qualify it with this is not at all as unmodern as it sounds. The female bird pretties herself for her mate and hatches eggs for him. In exchange, the male takes care of gathering food and stands guard and wards off the enemy. When the Nazis took control, there were 100,000 female teachers, 3,000 female doctors, and 13,000 female musicians. Within months of the Reichstag fire, these working women were all fired and replaced with men. The laws were changed so that women would no longer count against the nation's unemployment statistics. Thus, with a wave of the pen, 116,000 individuals disappeared from the unemployment rolls. Even though they fired them, 
the Nazis didn't want women just sitting around. In 1933, Germany passed the Law for the Encouragement of Women. Newly married couples became eligible for a 1,000 mark loan, the equivalent of nine months' salary. The repayment of this loan was written in such a way as to directly incentivize women to produce children. These would be German children that the Fuhrer believed would one day play a part in the Third Reich's army. Families that produced one child received a 25% discount off of the repayment. Two children meant 50% off, and four or more children meant that the loan never had to be repaid. It was free money. With these policies, the Germans attempted to create a society that would mimic one of their favorite nursery rhymes, which went something like this. Women, take hold of the kettle, broom, and pan, then you'll surely get a man. Shop and office leave alone, your true life work lies at home. The removal of women from the workplace, the massive increase in the military ranks, government stimulus funds for new technology, combined with the banning of labor-saving technology and the actual removal of the right to fire workers, unless you had government permission first, each played a significant role in the German economic miracle. At least that was the way that it was sold to the world. While unemployment on paper had fallen from 5.6 million to only 0.4 million by 1938, the lives of regular Germans weren't much improved. In 1933, Germany spent 3% of her gross domestic product on the military. By the time World War I broke out, it had increased to a whopping 32%. More than one out of every five German workers were employed in an industry that was narrowly focused on military production. Hitler had personally ordered that the production of consumer goods would not interfere with the preparation for war. Protectionism also contributed to a lack of goods throughout the German motherland. The Nazis had outlawed the importation of any goods which could be made domestically. Although their policies put people back to work, its sole focus on military production, i.e. guns, versus civilian goods, i.e. butter, ensured that their lives were no better than they had been under the Weimar Republic. The breakout of hostilities in 1939 was not a shock to the German government. Authoritarianism had been instilled at the earliest of ages, and the direct purpose was to further the Third Reich. Joseph Ratzinger, better known to history as Pope Benedict XVI, was derogatorily described as the Nazi Pope by his political adversaries. This was because of the fact that he had joined the Hitler Youth at the age of 14. Quick Google image searches of the organization displays some sort of a sadistic form of Boy Scouts, with blonde hair and blue-eyed boys of all ages sporting the now-traditional Nazi brown shirts while practicing their Heil Hitler salute. Historians were quick to rush to the defense of the Vatican's chosen leader, pointing out that involvement in the youth group was essentially mandatory. In 1936, four million boys aged 10 to 18 were spending their free time learning military maneuvers rather than how to tie a ship knot. Adolf was particularly proud of the youth regiments, pointing to a Spartan-like desire to weed out the unworthy, claiming, the weak must be chiseled away. I want young men and women who can suffer pain. A young German must be as swift as a greyhound, as tough as leather, and as hard as croup steel. Boys regularly practice using a bayonet, grenade throwing, trench digging, chemical gas defense maneuvers, as well as how to best crawl under barbed wire. The group served as a way of deifying the government among the easily pliable minds of the youth. It was also the only option available as Hitler had banned all other groups, including the actual Boy Scouts in 1936. 
It was a regular occurrence for Hitler youth children to denounce their parents for thoughts against the regime. They had become so saturated in party ideology that they had become obedient, fanatical soldiers for the Reich. In case you are wondering, yes, there was a female equivalent of the Hitler Youth. Rather than preparing for war, their days were spent learning what was expected of them as wives, such as running 60 meters in 14 seconds and how to best make the bed. The League of German Girls, as it was branded, became mandatory in 1939. Conformity and obedience to the state were preached at all levels of the organization. This was all according to the Fuhrer's plans. After all, in Mein Kampf, he pointed out that whoever has the youth has the future. Each of the programs were designed to achieve Volksgemeinschaft for a unified German community. Drills were so difficult that teachers regularly complained that their students were so tired from the youth programs that they were unable to stay awake during class. The government's response was to make attendance at Hitler youth meetings mandatory in 1939. As offensive as this is to a teacher such as myself, in this unique instance it might have been best for the children to have slept through all of their classes under the Nazi regime. Like everything else, the rise of Adolf Hitler massively changed the education system. In an effort to establish one clear German culture, teachers began pushing racial awareness in every subject. Biology lessons emphasized the difference between races, particularly among the Jewish citizens of Germany. In health class, students were told about worthy races, such as the Germans. They then compared and contrasted them to the so-called unworthy races, which, according to their teachings, were prone to both hereditary and sexually transmitted diseases. The fear was particularly obsessed with the sexually transmitted disease of syphilis. He spent 13 full pages on what he referred to as the Jewish disease in his autobiography. His doctor's personal diaries suggest that Adolf Hitler suffered from untreated syphilis after an encounter with a Jewish prostitute in 1908. Psychiatrist Dr. Basim Habib points out that syphilis, if left untreated, can cause madness and paranoia. He states that Hitler's behavior and health such as mood swings, paranoid rages, rashes, and stomach problems were typical of syphilis. Additionally, sudden criminal behavior, paranoia, grandiosity, and mania are all characteristics of advanced stage neurosyphilis. In other classroom lessons, students measured their heads with tape measurers and checked the color of their eyes and texture of their hair against charts of Aryan and Nordic types. Family tree projects were designed to establish their place in society. Across the curriculum, German students, including those of Jewish descent, were constantly subjected to lessons that emphasized the racial inferiority of the Jewish people. The pursuit of Volksgemeinschaft in all avenues of life meant that individuals were being indoctrinated 24-7. Their parents, their schools, their after-school mandatory activities, the radio programs, and the operas were all traveling the same one-way road. If you don't know the whole picture, one can look back at the German people during this period and assume that they lost their minds for allowing and participating in the Holocaust. But they didn't lose their minds. They were trained and manipulated by a sociopath to believe that they were acting in the right. The Holocaust didn't begin immediately after Adolf achieved leadership status. He had six years of full control over his people before World War II began. Think about how much of your core personality is formed between the 6th and 12th grades. Now imagine if that entire curriculum was intentionally aligned both vertically and horizontally 
to justify mass murder. Additionally, nearly all of the parents of this time had lost loved ones in the not-distant past of World War I. They were part of a shared collective who suffered from PTSD. They had survived through the lowest of economic moments, only to emerge because of the Nazis' policies. And those policies were the only thing credited for the success of Germany. All forms of news, particularly the radio found in every home, reinforced the exact same message. Germans that fit in were God's chosen ones, and those that couldn't fit in had to be removed. As kids today would say, they had all drank the Kool-Aid. Hitler's altering of the collective psyche of the German people even extended to the sports world. Adolf Hitler sold the notion that the Aryans were God's chosen people, inheritors of the ancient Greek sporting culture. Weimar Germany had previously been awarded the 1936 Olympic Games, and they proceeded in Nazi Germany despite calls for boycotts from countries around the world. The issue at the forefront of those boycott calls was Germany's treatment of Jewish athletes. Although our plan is to focus on all stages of the Holocaust in a later episode, including the early stages of discrimination, we'll take this opportunity to expound on what was happening to German citizens of Jewish descent. The first wave of anti-Semitic legislation came in 1933 and 1934. It focused on limiting the participation of Jews in public life. The belief of the moment seemed to be that if Aryan citizens ignored them, they could forget that they were even there. By the summer of 1935, they were prevented from going to the cinemas, public swimming pools, and vacation resorts. The Nuremberg Laws came into existence in 1935 and institutionalized virulent German racism throughout the legal system. Historian Lucy Dawidowitz eloquently argues that the Nuremberg Laws completed the disenfranchisement of the Jews of Germany. Segregation into ghettos would follow in 1938. During the build-up to the Olympic Games, few could have imagined that the end result of Germany's policies would be the systematic elimination of more than 6 million souls but they could see the obvious unfairness towards German-Jewish athletes happening in the moment. Some of those athletes had been unfairly excluded from the national team, while others were barred from training facilities in an attempt to encourage them to give up. An investigation, led by a biased group of individuals who desperately wanted the games to continue, served to satisfy most countries. These advocates for the games pointed to a few token German-Jewish athletes like Fencer Helene Meyer who were allowed to compete in order to appease those that wished to boycott. Meyer managed to flee Germany afterwards and went on to win the U.S. championship eight times between 1934 and 1946. She also achieved the honors of becoming the first female world champion in 1937. Although her personal story ends well, the vast majority of German-Jewish athletes were unfairly prohibited from participating. This even included their top-ranked tennis player and the country's middleweight boxing champion. Still, the decision of whether to boycott or not wasn't as simple as right versus wrong. For instance, the Catholic Church supported a boycott, while the American Jewish Committee didn't. Both had strong warrants behind their viewpoints. The Catholics thought that attending the Olympics would place the seal of approval upon the radically anti-Christian Nazi doctrine of youth. Keep in mind the irony that one of their church's future popes was literally within those youth indoctrination programs. The American Jewish Committee, on the other hand, was fearful that a boycott would unleash a wave of anti-Semitism backlash in the U.S as Jews would be the ones publicly blamed for the cancellation. In the end, the reason that won out was that the games belonged to the athletes, rather than the politicians. 
Reportedly, Adolf the politician wasn't initially thrilled about hosting the Olympics. But Joseph Goebbels' propaganda machine worked as well on the fear as it did on his people. As the date of the games arrived, Hitler focused less on the internationalism of the games and instead embraced the opportunity to prove that Germany was back as a world power. American athlete Jesse Owens traveled to the Berlin Games in part to prove that blacks could compete with the best athletes in the world. In 1936, the Global Games were predominantly white. Only two of the 48 countries that participated were from Africa, and those two were Egypt and apartheid South Africa. Japan was the highest placing non-European descent country. They came in 8th place, behind the likes of Sweden, France, Finland, Italy, Hungary, the United States, and the host Germans, who finished in 1st place. Owens was one of only 18 African-American athletes that attended the Games. Although this number is shockingly low to us now, it was triple the number of black athletes that had participated in the 1932 Los Angeles Games. Although these 18 athletes were each incredibly skilled, one can parse through their individual stories to examine both inequality and racism in America. All 18 African-American athletes came from predominantly white universities, proving to many that the doctrine of separate but equal, set forth in the 1896 case of Plessy v. Ferguson, left black colleges with vastly inferior training equipment and facilities. Black journalists across America pointed out the hypocrisy of seeking to boycott the games because of the Nazis' racist exclusion policies, without first considering America's own history. America's exclusion significantly weakened their Olympic team's chances for gold. This group of 18 athletes won 14 medals, which was nearly one-fourth of all of the medals earned by the runner-up U.S. of A. In Germany, Jesse Owens became the first American athlete to win four gold medals in a single games, winning the 100-meter dash, the 200-meter dash, the long jump, and the 4 by 100 relay. Never willing to miss a chance for their own propaganda, the U.S. hailed Owens and his fellow African-American athletes as having struck a blow against the Nazi myth of Aryan superiority, which it did. But unfortunately, that momentum never arrived home with Owens and his compatriots. Hitler had stopped shaking hands with gold medal winners after he was informed that he would have to shake all winners' hands, no matter what their ethnicity was. This led to a highly publicized story of Owens, the biggest star of the games, being snubbed by the fear. But a month later, the track star revealed his inner thoughts on this manner, stating bluntly that, quote, Hitler didn't snub me. It was U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt who snubbed me. The president didn't even send me a telegram. Indeed, the black American Olympiads weren't included in the White House celebration. It would be left up to the administration of Barack Obama to honor Owens and the other black Olympians by hosting family members in a ceremony during his presidential administration, 80 years after the Berlin Games. The Games went off as one of the most lavish and enjoyed up to that point in history, and thus had given the Nazis the international recognition that they had craved. Perhaps showcasing his inner desires for world domination, Hitler publicly expressed the desire to make Berlin the Olympics' permanent home. Beginning after the conclusion of the next Games, the 1940 Tokyo Games. That's right, even then the Olympic Committee had a knack for choosing their hosts. Although plenty worshipped the sports world, Adolf Hitler was equally concerned with the religious beliefs of the German people. Dictators are known to hate competition, 
and the Christian churches in authoritarian countries have always served as beacons to aid those who have been led astray. When the Nazis assumed power, there were 45 million Protestants and 22 million Catholics living in Germany. Thomas Mueller was a member of the Nazis' Old Guard, or Old Fighters, as the original German translates to. Moeller was appointed the head of a state-sponsored Reich Church that was designed to unify Germany's 28 existing Protestant churches. Mueller's assumption of power was challenged by faith leaders, but Hitler strong-armed individuals out of the position until his chosen leader was dutifully elected. Now, with their own head in charge, the Nazi church attempted to ban the reading of the Old Testament as a work of Jewish origin, which is rather difficult to justify considering that the entire Christian faith revolves around the Jewish leader Jesus of Nazareth. They also attempted to push through an Aryans-only clause that would make it clear that no one of Jewish or Slavic heritage could attend church. This again is something that strikes against the heart of the universalizing faith of Christianity, which to this date hasn't met an individual that it wouldn't be willing to try to convert. While attempting to take over the Protestant faction of the nation, Hitler came to a concordiant, or agreement with the Catholics. According to the deal with the Vatican, the German government would leave the Catholic Church alone if it stayed out of the world of German politics. History has held the Catholic Church as largely complicit to Hitler's crimes because they stuck to the bargain. Hitler didn't. Germany quickly sent in spies and informants throughout the church system to monitor the inner workings of Catholicism. Those that did stand up were quickly nailed down. The Protestant confessional church went directly after the Nazis. Their originator, Martin Niemöller, was sent to a concentration camp in 1937. He was a resident until 1945 and was later denied reprievement from his past after it became clear that he was an anti-Semite who had volunteered to serve as a U-boat captain during the war, if only Adolf would let him out of detention. 800 pastors followed Niemöller to the Nazi camps. Catholic schools attempted to avoid Nazi indoctrination, but were shut down for violating the state-ordered curriculum. When Pope Pius XI publicly criticized the Nazis, 400 Catholic priests were sent to Dachau. Although Hitler was successful in preventing the church from opposing him, he wasn't able to stamp out religion in Germany. In fact, Catholic attendance at Mass doubled during the Nazi years. The best that Adolf could do was to de-emphasize the history of Christianity's Jewish origins and reorientate it towards an Aryan, or Norse, version of the faith. Hitler was never quite clear on where he stood with religion. Although he publicly supported Christianity, he had stopped believing in it early in his life. The national interest explains some of the internal conflict within the fear, claiming that, quote, Although he esteemed Jesus as an Aryan fighter against Jewish materialism, who was martyred for his anti-Jewish stance, he did not ascribe to Jesus' death any significance in achieving human salvation. End quote. He also wasn't quite atheist either. He attributed that as the religion of the Bolsheviks, and thus was quick to stand opposed. The national interest comes to the following conclusion regarding Hitler's faith, stating that, quote, it seems evident that his religion was closest to pantheism. He often deified nature, calling it eternal and all-powerful at various times throughout his career. He frequently used the word nature interchangeably with God, providence, or the Almighty. While on some occasions he claimed God had created people or organisms, at other times, or sometimes in the same breath, he claimed nature had created them." End quote. Despite having clearly different beliefs on the subject, Volksgemeinschaft required the people to be united. Thus, it was Hitler's policy to at least appear Christian in public, while mocking its believers in private. The most overt challenge to Christianity, 
besides attempting to ban the use of the Old Testament, was the Nazi War on Christmas. We know Germany today for its time-honored Christmas traditions, such as Kris Kringle markets, their traditional pickle ornaments, and those advent calendars with chocolate that somehow gets eaten way too fast. Had Hitler and his twisted ideology survived, however, German Christmas traditions would look radically different. For one thing, they attempted to move the date from the 25th of December to the winter solstice. The Nazis also attempted to redefine good old Saint Nick with Wotan, an ancient German Norse god akin to Odin, the god of frenzy. Silent Night was rewritten as Exalted Night, which revealed that the secret to eternal life would only come from a world which had first been redeemed by the birth National Socialists. Just in case you needed yet another reason to hate the Nazis, they even replaced Christian imagery in their advent calendars with tiny little Nazi military propaganda. Through sports, the education sector, youth groups, religious affiliation, and the economy, the Nazis slowly molded their people into Volksgemeinschaft, a people's community that united all classes into one shared people devoted to a national purpose set forth by their leader. Their policies turned the trajectory of the economy around and sought to restore traditional home family values to Germany. Their success at the Olympics proved that the nation had returned to the global stage. Without realizing it, the people of Germany had been primed for their orders. Thus far in the story, the Nazi regime had fulfilled their promises, promises that the Weimar regime had made but never achieved. They had done what had been deemed impossible. Indeed, the French and British thought that they had rigged the game of geopolitics so that Germany could never again win. The vast majority of the German people began to believe that their government was infallible. The vast majority of its people now had shared experiences, ways of communicating their internal thoughts, and a shared reliance upon the government. For Adolf Hitler, it was now time to direct that mob against those that didn't fit into Germany's Volksgemeinschaft. In 1934, the Germans began forced sterilization for individuals with genetic illnesses. Genetic sterilization wasn't a Nazi invention. In fact, most of the research that Germany used to pass their policy was established in the United States. Margaret Sanger, who both coined the term birth control and established the organization that would become known as Planned Parenthood, advocated for eugenics which is commonly defined as the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Sanger attempted to limit births by those who were least able to afford children, many of whom at this particular point in American history were African American. As one would expect, the Nazis cared less about your economic fitness than a person's racial fitness. Paul Weindling of the Eugenics Historical Archive writes that the rapidity of the German sterilization laws implementation indicated the Nazi enthusiasm for a biological solution to social problems and for purifying the race. The first step towards achieving Hitler's desire to racially purify his lands in what would become known as the Holocaust was to impose sterilization on presumed hereditary schizophrenics, the feeble-minded, sufferers of Huntington's disease, persons deemed to be hereditarily blind and deaf, so-called mental defectives, and individuals who were chronic alcoholics. The Nazis portrayed these outwardly healthy people with recessive genes as genetic ticking time bombs waiting to explode Germany's collective racial health. Government tribunals were set up to judge the ill so that there was at least a visible system of checks and balances. 
but appeals to the government were rarely successful. A year later, the law was amended to include the punishment of castration for criminals and homosexuals. The inclusion of these two groups showed that the law, which was originally limited to genetic conditions, was really about eliminating individuals whom the Nazis viewed as both socially and racially undesirable. While this law was designed to eliminate future generations who are born with genetic disorders, those living with the disorders still remained. In 1939, the Nazis began to change that. World War II had begun and thus the Nazis were free from caring about international norms. From 1939 to 1941, the Nazis began the practice of euthanasia, the medical killing of 70,000 mentally and physically handicapped people. Although it's historically appropriate that our attention is focused on the more than 6 million Jewish world citizens that were murdered in the Holocaust, it is also critically important that we do not forget about the Gypsies, Marxists, members of the LGBTQIA community, as well as religious groups like the Jehovah Witnesses that were all specifically targeted alongside with their Jewish brethren. Germans in the mid to late 1930s were forced to make a choice. Continue down the path of conformity with the masses to worship the Nazi ideology, or to remain on the fringe of society, proudly fitting out rather than fitting in. The desire for Volksgemeinschaft, however, meant exclusion or death for all of those who were incapable of fitting in. A German Jew couldn't do anything about racial features that had been genetically passed down to him or her. Gypsies could not change a culture that they had proudly lived for centuries, and the physically ill could not wish away their handicap. The uniting of all classes inevitably eliminated those who would not fit in. The asocial, the work-shy, homosexuals, and Nazi political opponents. As well as those that could not fit in. The resident aliens, the ineducable, and the incurable. Hitler's racist belief that it was his natural purpose to purify the human race meant that World War II would be an all-or-nothing affair. It was as Adolf Hitler had promised his readers in Mein Kampf, Germany will either be a world power, or there will be no Germany. <laughs>